Our Father, we desperately love You. And we love Your Word. I'm thankful that we are in the midst of people who long to know You through the study of Your Word. God, I'm thankful that we who are gathered here in this place today understand that the voice of God is not some uh, subjective premonition uh, out there, but that the voice of God is most loudly heard through the Word of God. And so, Father, we plead with you today to um, speak to our hearts through the reading and the study of your Word. We pray, Father, that you would uh, sharpen us. For as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Father, I pray that as we continue our study of the cross of Christ, the cross from Christ's perspective, that, Father, that you would... um, Oh, stir up in us, Lord, a tremendous love for You. May we be utterly amazed at the price that Jesus paid on our behalf in obedience to You to bring forgiveness of our sins, to make us part of the body of Christ, to secure our eternal destiny. And Father, may the fires of passion well up within us even today as we study Your Word. We pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We are making our way through a series of messages on the cross from Christ's perspective. And if you are following along, you know that we um, are asking some questions of the text and allowing God to speak through us. In Isaiah chapter 52, verse 14, the Bible says that Jesus' appearance was marred more than any man and His form more than the sons of men. I would remind you, even as we mentioned last week, that Jesus was one of three who were crucified on that day. But there was only one, though all three went through the similar experience of the uh, crucifixion. Only one's form was marred beyond recognition in the midst of the three. And that one was Jesus. We've spent last two weeks looking at the views of the cross. What would Christ have observed visibly from the cross? And we said that He first of all would have looked at Himself. Uh, Psalm Matthew 27 in four different places ties in Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is where Jesus cries out with a loud voice, uh, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we're going to be getting to that passage uh, in greater detail uh, in the coming weeks. 
We hadn't got there yet, but we just saw that Matthew 27 was tied in in four places to, to Psalm 22. And we saw that in Psalm 22, being a messianic psalm, Jesus is viewing Himself from the cross. Last week we also said that Jesus viewed people from the cross. Uh, he viewed believers. He, For example, Mary, uh, his mother was there at the cross. Though the disciples had scattered, John scattered and circled back around and was there at the cross for Jesus to entrust the care of Mary into John's hand and, and, and spoke those words from the cross. So we know that there were believers there uh, at the cross, even few. There were the redeemed there at the cross. We also saw last week that there were those who rejected Christ. So the very ones that He was dying that they might be saved rejected Him. They were wagging, they were making insults, wagging their heads, and, and casting lots for His garments, and all of those things there, oblivious to the fact that their only path of salvation was the one there dying in front of them that they were insulting, and they were casting lots for His garments. And we also saw that Jesus there on that day would witness not only the redeemed and the rejected, but those who would become redeemed. Uh, for example, the centurion that was there witnessed all of these things and said, Surely this was the Son of God. And Acts chapter 6 verse 7 tells us that a great many of the priests who rejected Christ, once they saw and witnessed that, and once they looked at the veil of the temple being rent in two, and once they considered all the things related to the crucifixion of Christ, Acts chapter 6 verse 7 says that they came uh, and believed. A great number of the priests uh, believed uh, in, in Christ. We also said that not only would Jesus see people, but He would also see the spiritual realities. We talk about the physical realities, the people and the spiritual realities. We would not know about the spiritual realities if God hadn't told us that in His Word. And so, of course, we said that because it was Luke twenty-two fifty-three, the hour of the power of the darkness, that Jesus certainly would have seen Satan there. And Satan would not cower at Him at all, but He would come and unleash Satan actually thought that He was going to win on the cross. The demons Jesus would have seen, and though the demons cowered at Him throughout His entire ministry, they're the ones who came, and as we saw last week, they couldn't sit quiet in His presence. They had to reveal themselves. You know, what do you have to do with us, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? We know who you are. They couldn't stay silent. Even when Jesus went to the synagogue to worship, there was a demon-possessed man who had to speak out and, and be identified in the presence of Jesus. But here on this day, because of the hour of the power of the darkness, they would have unleashed and unloaded, as we've said in the past, everything. We also saw last week in Colossians 2.15 that while Jesus was on the cross at the conclusion of the hour of the power of the darkness, and we don't know how this happened or in what way, we just affirm what the Bible says in Colossians chapter 2, that He disarmed the, the, the rulers of darkness. And we also saw last time that Jesus would have observed the Father making His way towards the cross. Yes, God is omnipresent, 
But much like we see in Ezekiel chapter 1, the Father began to move and began to make His way and to come and make a special appearance or presence at the cross. And Jesus would have observed that happening as well as the angels and Satan would have observed that happening as well. But other people, because it's a spiritual reality, perhaps would be oblivious to the fact that this was indeed taking place. So we're halfway through the crucifixion. The crucifixion started at 9 o'clock in the morning. Relatively short crucifixion, it ended at 3 o'clock, 6 hours. Now, the reason I say a relatively short crucifixion, by the way, if I were going to be crucified, I would pray that it would be a relatively short. Historians tell us of people lingering alive on the cross for days, for days. Um, I could go into the details of, uh, of, of the, the ravens, the birds that would come and things that they would do, but um, I'll spare you of those details uh, why people just lingered uh, on the cross, unable to shoo them away or to do anything uh, along uh, those lines, waiting uh, to die. It was a relatively short crucifixion. You remember they came and broke the legs of the thieves, uh, criminals beside him, so that they would die quicker because uh, it was Passover. They didn't have to do that to Jesus because he was already dead. So we have six hours of Christ on the cross, three hours in the light, in three hours in the dark. Three hours in the dark. So, for example, three, three accounts of the Gospels mentioned the darkness over the cross. Look with me, if you would, at... Let's look at Mark's account in, in Mark 15. I think it's Mark 15. Mark chapter 15, they were passing, uh, uh, ca- casting insults at him. And we're going to pick up in verse 33, Mark 15, 33. The Bible says that when the sixth hour came, now this would not be six hours into the crucifixion. It's not counting time that way. It would be the sixth hour, which would be noon, which would be noon. Uh, He was crucified at 9 a.m. at the third hour. The sixth hour would be 12 noon. And notice what happened. And when the sixth hour came, darkness fell over. Now, look at the language here. And I'm using New American Standard because of the literalness of of this. Darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. So a couple things that we need to note was darkness fell. It was noontime. It was the middle of the day. No mention of rain. No hearing of thunder. This is, regardless of what you've seen in movies and portrayal, uh, this is not a storm rolling in. This is darkness, and this darkness fell, it says. Luke's account, it's interesting, uses the word uh, darkness became. 
darkness became. Um, he, 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 it fell, uh, it became, now look at this, over the whole land. Now, one thing I, I can't wait to find out when I get to heaven was how much of the whole land uh, was dark. We're not just talking about a, a, you know, a, a few feet around the cross. Darkness fell over the whole land, and in Greek, the whole land could be the whole land that's there around around Jerusalem. The same word is also used for the entire earth. Was the entire world cast into darkness for three hours, or to what extent? Uh, one thing we do know is is they would have noticed the darkness and been in the darkness five to six miles down the road. Uh, in Bethlehem, they would have noticed or been in the darkness in the northern part of the state in in Galilee. We just don't know to what extent darkness appeared. It's interesting because you see the word until the darkness came until the uh, uh, until the hour until the ninth hour. You'll also notice that, that so it, it's as if there they are and this has taken place and darkness comes and assembles there over the whole land, however you define whole land, and then three hours later it departs. It leaves. The, the language is not such that that this storm rolled in and these dark clouds rolled in and passed over and, and kept going. The language of the text in the gospel seemed to say that darkness became and was there until it departed. Now, did it depart at one time? Did it depart in sessions? We, we don't know. But there are some things that we can learn and there are some things that we do know now. Now, our our task is to is to see what the Bible would have to say about all of these things. Uh, we're not talking about speculation. We're not talking about opinion. We're not talking about those things. Has the, here's the question: Has God revealed anything in His Word related to the darkness over the cross? And if He has, let's find out. Because listen, if God if God conceals a truth, good luck ever finding out what God has concealed. Uh, there's a place, for example, in Daniel chapter 12 where God explains some things and then he, can, he, he gives Daniel some insight and, and then he seals up this truth. You can do a doctoral dissertation on that which God has sealed up and you will walk away scratching your head because what God conceals is concealed of God. And until God chooses to reveal it... Um, Good luck figuring out what it is. I hope to convince you biblically, though, that the darkness over the cross is not like that. The darkness over the cross is is not something that's concealed. I, I believe it's something that's revealed, and I think we'll see it in the page of Scripture, and I think that hopefully you'll be biblically convinced of the truthfulness of this. And it will enhance your worship of God. And 
it will continue. I've said before, the, the purpose of this study is that you and I might walk away from such a study with a renewed amazement of Christ and who He is and all that He's done, particularly as it relates to His work for us on the cross. So we see here, all three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, darkness comes, darkness lasts for three hours, and darkness departs. Darkness departs. Another observation that we make is though there are many sayings of Jesus from the cross, Jesus remains absolutely silent in the darkness. It just simply says it was dark from this hour until that hour, and it's quiet. Jesus is absolutely quiet. He speaks before the darkness comes. When the darkness departs, He screams out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He says a couple other things before He says it is finished, and as King James says, gives up the ghost. But three hours in the darkness, Christ is there on the cross, and He is absolutely silent. Not a word. Now, I think another observation that we need to make is that, remember, there was no electricity in those days. There were three national feasts, and so Jews from everywhere would have been there in Jerusalem on that day when that was occurring. As the people were scurrying around and as they were taking their lambs and sheep to the temple to be slaughtered and all the things that we see, the hustle and bustle going on around the Passover, around the national feast on this day, everyone there would have noticed the darkness and the darkness would have immediately caused, wouldn't you think, everyone to stop and question. It would probably create turmoil, as Yolanda says. They didn't have torches with them. They would have those back in their dwelling places at night, and so perhaps some would go and do that and, and bring it. But when they traveled during the day, they didn't carry a source of light with them. They didn't need that. They would come, and then they would go back home where their light source would be. Can you imagine the chaos? Could you imagine the turmoil? Could you imagine the confusion? Could you imagine the questions of what, would, what took place as darkness became over the whole land? Beloved, think about the eclipse. Uh, another Mark's gospel, Luke's gospel says, the sun was obscured. Um, Think about how amazed we are at an eclipse. And, and how long did the eclipse last? Well, well, this last one, I mean, a few seconds, a few minutes would be total eclipse. I mean, think about it. I mean, people were driving everywhere to, to catch a glimpse of, this, of, of darkness on the day of the eclipse. So, I mean, you can just imagine here they are, unexpected. There are no news reports, the, no mention of weather issues at all. It just becomes dark. The sun is obscured, and it's not just a passing thing. It's as long as this sermon's going to be three hours. 
Now, Martha said on Facebook, it's in writing, I can prove it. (laughs) I mentioned coming to church earlier and getting to worship sooner, and she says we can worship an hour longer. I love that. I love that. So I want you to think about this. Three hours. This is not a, hmm, I I wonder what that was. Did you see that? This is not, I don't know if you've ever been in a place and felt the tremor of an earthquake that kind of happens and it goes and you're wondering, did I really just feel that or did I not feel that? Was that, did that really happen? It's not like that at all. Darkness came over the whole land for three hours. Now, now you and I have the privilege of knowing a couple of things. Number one, that it was three hours. They didn't know if the sun was ever going to come out. They, they didn't know what was happening, what was going on. They, they didn't know. I mean, the, the longer it went, perhaps the more panic that set in, right? We, 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 don't know, we don't know those things. We just know that darkness came for three hours over the whole land and the darkness departs. The question becomes, why is that significant enough for God to record that in three of the four Gospels? Why is it significant enough that Christ would speak in the light, that He would remain silent and dark? You and I are privileged to know that this is the halfway point of the crucifixion. The ones there witnessing on that day, they, they would have no clue. They would not understand. It would only be later that they would look back, that they would put the timeline together. This happened here, and this happened here, and recorded. It would be later that they would record all the details and events and talk to eyewitnesses and gather people together and say, and what happened here? And it happened at this point, and know that it was at the three-hour mark, and notice after when Jesus cried out when he gave up to go, that they would put together the, the uh, renting of the temple veil in two, and all of those things, because these things would be happening at different places throughout the city. You and I are privileged to have the accounts in the Gospels telling us these things and, and what happened. So you know that there must be some significance to... Uh, the darkness over the cross. Well, there are many, many reasons that people uh, have considered the fact that there was darkness over the cross. Um, uh, For for example, um, some never thought about it. Just right, you just read the crucifixion story. It was light, it was darkness, three hours this happened. We just read it. It's only it's only one verse. In each of the gospels, it's only one verse. And we might go, hmm, I don't know what that is, and, and keep going. Without even in other words, sometimes we will view a biblical event as happening at the the whole event, the whole six hour as one event. Galatians does this, by the way. Right? It says that, you know, curses everyone who hangs on the tree. It's not dividing into the itemized issues or the things that took place at the crucifixion. It just kind of views it all as one event. And perhaps that's what many of you have done. If you just kind of viewed it all as one event and these are the things that happened and really have put no thought into it uh, at all. Another viewpoint that some would say was was that darkness was present because of the vast assemblage of demons and Satan. 
Um, uh, you could find some scriptural evidence uh, for that. For example, um, e- even as we talked about some of the, the verses uh, in the Bible that relate to light and darkness, there are thousands of them, by the way. Uh, Jason read several uh, of them. But for example, to kind of go along with how some people would, would see that would be John's Gospel in John chapter 1. And Jason talked about light and darkness in this particular uh, aspect, that Jesus is the light of the world. He was, that John had come to testify uh, chapter 1 uh, about Jesus. So the Gospel of John chapter 1 Verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Um, There we're talking about the spiritual realities of darkness. Spiritual realities of light, spiritual realities of darkness. Now I want to go on record to say that the Bible is talking about physical darkness. This is not just the spiritual realities. The people would have visibly, visually seen the darkness. Here in John chapter 1, verse 5, it's using in the spiritual kind of metaphoric terms, right? He was the light. He came into darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Um, Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2 comes to mind. We look at Isaiah 6 in, in uh, Isaiah chapter 9, uh, verse 2, we see this particular use of, of darkness where the Bible says, "...the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine upon them." Uh, this is referring to the Gentiles and again uses light and darkness in a spiritual reality sense that there is a difference between spiritual light and spiritual darkness. Now, the same principles uh, happen to happen in the physical, happen in the spiritual. For example, there are no degrees of darkness. Darkness is not measured in degrees. Darkness is measured by the amount of light that is present or absent, right? If you remove light, the more light you remove, the darker it becomes. There, is, there are no degrees of darkness. There's only the degrees of the absence of light. When we lived in West Virginia, the first church I pastored, we had the opportunity to go to Beckley and get in, go into the coal mines and go over a mile under the earth. <laughs> And they turn out the lights. I mean, there's no ambient light. There are no outside light. I mean, you get this glimpse for just a few seconds what total darkness would would be like. But you know what's amazing? Is just a teeny tiny light can penetrate the darkness. If you get up early in the morning before your spouse does and, and it's dark and sometimes I'll just click my phone and the kind of the not the not the flashlight, that's pretty bright, but the light on my phone will be enough to see to, to get up and not stumble over things along those lines. Just a small light penetrates uh, the darkness. 
Jesus, of course, is the light of the world, and as we've seen that. So, compared to the assemblage of darkness... Uh, Colossians would somewhat affirm that. How many times have you heard me say that He has delivered us, we who are saved, who are redeemed, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness into the Son of the Beloved. But I don't think that there's scriptural... um, I don't think that that's what it is. So some would say that the darkness would be, right, it's Luke twenty two fifty three. it's the hour of the power of the darkness and all the demons have come. Uh, I believe, as we've talked about last couple of weeks, that the first element of the cup that Jesus drank was that Satan and his demons came. And I think they came and unleashed and unloaded and Jesus' face began to change. During that time, But I think that happened in the light. We're moving into the second element of the cup that Christ drank, right? Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. We said there are three elements. The first one would be the, the cup of suffering from the demons and, and Satan there. Another possible answer is that some people would say that the darkness would be God's way of giving testimony to everyone there that this was not an ordinary criminal who was crucified on the cross. That God allowed the sun to be obscured to mark this moment, that this was no usual, ordinary criminal being crucified. I, I do think there may be some some truth to that. Um, after all, John chapter 12, John chapter 12, verse 35. So Jesus said to them, For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. Verse 36, while you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of the light. So there's a sense in which Jesus is that God may have simply been saying, Jesus is the light and you've rejected the light and here is a physical sign that people have rejected the light and the darkness has come. But I don't think that's the totality of the answer. One other thing that people say is is they say, particularly in relation to the words of Jesus, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Maybe this is the one that you've heard. This is a pretty popular one. This is one that I believed and preached before I believe what I believe now that the Bible teaches. And it's probably the most popular. And that is that the Father turned His face away from the Son. In other words, the Bible says that He who knew no sin became sin for us. 
And when He became sin for us, the Father could no longer look upon His sin. Ever heard this word? Because God cannot look upon darkness. He must turn away. He is too holy to look upon darkness. And when He turned and looked away, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have You forsaken Me? He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteous of God. And when He, when all of this was happening, that the Father could not look upon His Son who did not sin, He was sinless but became sin for us that we might become uh, the righteousness of God. Anybody heard that one? That, that's, that's most common. That's most common. So I don't, I don't believe it's any of those things. And particularly, let's take the, the last one there, that God can't look upon evil and I thought, well, you know, surely if everyone believes that that is the case, then there must be evidence for it all throughout the Bible. There must be evidence of that truth throughout the pages of Scripture. And as you begin to study the pages of Scripture, what you begin to discover is, is that is not true and just the opposite occurs. For example, remember in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3, Adam fell, right? Eve sinned, gave to sin. Did, did God have any problems looking upon Adam? I, I don't think so. He, he, in fact, he came and he said, Adam, where art thou? Where, where are you? He came pursuing he who had become darkness, if you will. No, I don't think that you're going to find it. In fact, what you're going to find is, is you're going to find just the opposite. And I, I, want to, I want to show you this. Look in Genesis, for example. Look in Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. Then the Lord couldn't see the wickedness of man. No, no. What does it say? It says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. God saw that. He didn't turn away from that. He, he, he saw it. He saw it. Um, look in Exodus chapter 3, verse 7. Please turn to the right in your Bible. And again, we have to look at several places today, and you can just listen or follow along. But um, Exodus chapter 3, verse 7, the Lord said this, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I'm aware of their sufferings. Now, where was their afflictions? Where were their afflictions and sufferings coming from? From evil and from darkness. And, and God doesn't say, I couldn't look at it. He says, I have seen the uh, afflictions. If you go to Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11, 
Again, just a sampling of, of verses that I think will, will show you why I struggle to see that as the, as the truthfulness of the darknesses. Jeremiah 7 verse 11, Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? Behold, I, God says, even I have seen it, declares the Lord. So, so nowhere in the Bible do you have God turning away from evil or from wickedness. Even, even the ultimate evil and the ultimate darkness. There's no mention of God turning His head away when Satan himself enters into His presence and God looks at him and says, Where have you been? And he says, Roman to and fro across the face of the earth, have you? And God is the one who looks at Satan and says, Have you considered my servant Job? When we get back to our study in the book of Revelation, we're going to see that, that the only time the devil tells the truth is when he's in the presence of God as the accuser. Revelation 12 says that he is the accuser of the brethren. Listen, I don't know about you. I do know about you. But it's true about me too that that is the one time that he does not have to lie is when he's telling God all the sin that I commit and the wrong that that I do. there's, There's enough truth there for him to be the accuser. So no no mention at all about God having to turn his face away. In fact, if you think about it, because the entire world that was created by God has been cast into darkness so that every person is sin, sinful, and creation itself groans because of the sin uh, in it. And even the things that we call beautiful, such as the Grand Canyon and other things, would come from the effects of sin, which would be erosion. And those things, so if God could not look upon sin and its effects, then one of two things would happen. And I don't want to equate God to a middle school girl. But can you imagine, huh, I'm, I'm, I can't, I'm not looking at you. Huh, I can't see it, I can't. That's, that's not God. So it's not like up, 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 up. There's darkness. I can't, I can't be there. There's only one passage of scripture. I think if you look at it closely, it's in Habakkuk. And so, if you go to Nahum and turn right, or Zephaniah and turn left, you find there Habakkuk. And there in Habakkuk chapter one, verse thirteen, there is the idea that God cannot look upon um, evil. But I think if you read the context, the context is he can't look upon evil approvingly without judging it. 
So if there was a verse that says that God cannot, this, this would be it. Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 13. So those of you who do the daily reading plan to read through the whole Bible, because I don't know many people that just pick up their Bible and do the flop and drop and read Habakkuk. Okay? Alright? Which shamed a lot of good things in, in Habakkuk. But if you do this daily reading plan to read the whole Bible, you're going to read through the minor prophets in Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 13. The Bible says, your eyes are too pure to look upon evil or to approve evil and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. The idea is you can't look on it with favor. You can't look at it approvingly. You can't look at it without judging it. But not that he can't look at it. Now I'll tell you what's interesting is for that to be the most common Uh, view of the darkness over the cross, it's actually the one that has the least biblical support of that. In fact, the testimony of Scripture would be just the opposite. It's not that when God looks upon evil, He has to turn away. It's when evil, when darkness looks upon God, God, the darkness is the one that has to turn. Right? Um, remember Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up and the train of His robe fills the temple. And here He is and He knows that He's sinful and He knows that He's sinner. He's going he's to pronounce that. But it's not God who looks away because a sinful Isaiah is in His presence. It's Isaiah who says, Woe is me, I'm undone and ruined and, and, and kind of falls before a holy God. And folks, not the other way around. We, we see this in the, in the Gospels as well. Luke chapter 5, verse 8. Jesus is calling His disciples and Peter's fishing. And Jesus tells Peter to cast the net and tells him where to cast the net. And He brings in the greatest catch that He has ever brought. I mean, you talk about when you're a business owner, he had the greatest day fishing. Probably caught more fish than he would have caught all year. I mean, probably the equivalent of uh, you know, a car salesman selling 200 cars in a day. I, I, I don't know, but it would be something of that measure and significance that happened on that day. And I bet Peter, right, would have immediately signed Jesus on as a partner in the business. <laughs> But as we read this in Luke chapter 5, it says in verse 6, when they had enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break, so they signaled to their partners in the other boats for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. Look in verse 8. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying what? It wasn't Jesus who turned away from sinful man. He says, go away from me, Lord, for I am sinful. Oh, Lord. Even the disciple whom Jesus loved, John himself, who rested on the bosom of Jesus during the Lord's uh, Supper, The one who was one of the inner three. Peter, James, and John were the inner circle that always got to go to Jesus' special places. The one whom Jesus loved, John himself, when he sees Jesus in Revelation. Remember when he's on the Isle of Patmos and when we were looking at this in Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, verse 17, John writes this. And when I saw him... 
I fell at his feet like a dead man. <laughs> Beloved, it's not that God has to turn away. It's not that at all. It's not that at all. It's that man has to turn away from God. So if those aren't the reasons for the darkness over the cross, then what is? What's happening and taking place here? Three hours in the light, the words of Jesus speaking, three hours in the darkness, total silent. Jesus is the only time in all that goes on screams in agony. And we'll understand this in the days ahead. And then says the few things and gives up his spirit. Well, let's can we can we press ahead a little bit more? Is that is that okay? I mean, I know we're at eleven twenty three, but I need to. I like to press ahead a little bit more to give you some things to to think on uh, this week. Um, I, I think I think part of the answer then, if we're going to look and say, okay, so all right, then then what is the answer? I think part of the answer comes when we understand exactly what was taking place on the cross. So with that in mind, I want you to look in Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. In Luke chapter 22, we've already looked in verse 1 that Satan entered into Judas. And here's Judas and Judas is part of... The, the Lord's Supper. Luke chapter 22, verse 14. The Bible says, When the hour had come, Jesus reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks... He said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. Verse 19. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And if you mark your Bible, look in verse 20. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you. Now look at this. This is the first time Jesus mentions these words. He's been with his disciples for three years. And these words, you study all his teachings, have never come out of his mouth. He says, This cup which is poured out for you is the not the new kingdom, not the new church. It's the new covenant. Now look at this. The new covenant in my blood. Now, when you, when you look at that, it's talking about the new covenant. The disciples there on that day would know immediately what Jesus was talking about. 
He, he's not talking about, now there's the new covenant in my blood. They know the things that are about to take place. They don't know the timeline, but they know it's coming. Jesus has told them over and over that the Son of Man must die and be crucified and raise again on the third day. And here's Jesus saying, this cup is the new covenant. Now look at this, in my blood. He wasn't ratifying the covenant at the giving of the Lord's Supper. He was saying that what was about to take place, meaning his death, his crucifixion on the cross, would ratify or initiate the new covenant. Now, go with me, if you would, to Jeremiah chapter 31. And the reason they would know this is because Jeremiah chapter 31, and I'll let you read it. It's all throughout there. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And this is not a covenant like the one they made with, with, uh, with, with their fathers when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke. Verse 33, But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They studied intensely. They were looking for the Messiah to come, and they knew when the Messiah came that He would... Uh, established the new covenant and in the new covenant they would be in a right relationship with God. And the fact is the truthfulness of this is is that every person who is saved and every person who is brought into the family of God comes into the body of Christ through a new covenant relationship with God. There is no way for a person to be rightly related to God without coming in a covenant relationship with Him through the new covenant. And you're saying, so what does all that have to do with darkness? Well, let me just whet your appetite just a moment. Go with me, let's, because this is not the only covenant that's in the Bible. There are others as well. In fact, let's look at not the first one. The first one would be Genesis chapter 6 through 9, the God's covenant with Noah. And if you've been here with, at Docs for a long, long time, you know we studied those covenants when we walked through these things a couple of years ago. But, but, but look in Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15, you're familiar uh, with being the um, Abrahamic covenant. It's a covenant that God made with Abraham that through him all the nations would be blessed. And so God begins this in Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3. The covenant itself is not ratified. It's not initiated. It doesn't come into being until you get to this passage in Genesis chapter 15. And I don't know if you've ever seen this, but if you mark your Bibles, I want you to look here. In, in Genesis chapter 15, um, look, in verse, look in verse 6. And then Abraham believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness, by the way. I think that's when Abraham got saved. 
That's when he became a believer. So God spoke to him. He went on mission. He did all these things, Genesis 12, 13, 14, and the things that happened there. And it's not until here, and the Bible affirms this in Revelation, and I mean, in Romans, and Galatians, that Abraham believed God and it was created him as righteous. This is when that happens. He comes into a, a believing relationship with God, verse 7, and he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. And he said, O Lord God, how may I know that I'll possess it? And so he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon, verse 10. Then he brought all these things to him and he cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses and Abram drove them away. Now, notice verse 12. Now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, here's that word behold. Remember, we've said before, when you have the word behold, this is God getting your attention, saying, stop, pay attention, and look at this. Behold, terror. Now, look at this terror and great darkness fell upon him. And God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. And he goes on to affirm the covenant. Did you notice that? Here in the Abrahamic covenant, yes, the sun went down. The sun was going down. It was in the midst of going down. But notice what happened. Behold, terror and not just darkness, great darkness fell upon him. And in that darkness, God spoke. Go with me to Exodus chapter 24, if you will. Exodus chapter 24. You can read Exodus chapter 24. This is the, uh, the people affirmed their covenant with God. Then he said to Moses, Come up here to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seventy of the elders, and you shall worship at a distance. And Moses alone, however, shall come to the Lord, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people come up to him. And Moses came and, and, and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has spoken we will do. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Then he rose early in the morning morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the sons and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in the basins. The other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar and he took the book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood and he sprinkled it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you 
in accordance with all these words. Then Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and 70 of the elders, and they saw the God of Israel. And under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself. Yet he did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel. And they saw God and ate and drank. And the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and remain there, and I will give you the stone tablets with the law and the commandment which I have written for their institution. So Moses arose with Joshua his servant, and Moses went up to the mountain of God, but the elders didn't. Look in verse 15. Then Moses went up to the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses from the midst of the cloud, and to the eyes of the sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. And Moses entered the midst of the cloud as he went up to the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. And you're saying, okay, so there was a cloud, but I don't say don't see darkness. And you're right, because darkness isn't mentioned here. But you will remember that when he gave them this, did they keep the covenant? No, immediately. In fact, while Moses was gone, they were calling Aaron to build a golden calf and they began to worship it. So God killed off that generation and raised up another generation, their kids. And we have the book of Deuteronomy, which is the second giving of the law. The second giving of the law. So look with me in Deuteronomy chapter 4. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, this is the re-giving of the law. Notice chapter 4, Israel's urge to obey God's law, and they're telling the story of what happened when God established the covenant with them. And in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 11, he says this, well, look in verse 10, Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, when the Lord said to me, Assemble the people to me, that I may let them hear my words, so they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on earth, and that they may teach their children. Notice verse 11, if you mark your Bibles, You came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire to the very heart of the heavens. Now look at this. Darkness. Cloud and thick gloom. Now, beloved, it's not in every passage of Scripture that God established a covenant, but at least these two, and I believe in the establishment of the new covenant as well. Darkness is not the absence of God, but darkness is the presence of God. God is light, and in Him is no shadow of darkness. I'm not saying that darkness is in God. He's light. But when God so chooses, He enshrouds Himself in darkness that the light will not consume the people that He is interacting with by His pure light, 
holiness and glory. Well, is there any scriptural evidence for that? Look, look with me in, in 2 Samuel. You'll see this in 2 Samuel 22 and you'll see this in Psalm 18. 2 Samuel chapter 22. This is David's psalm of deliverance. And David spoke the words of this song to the Lord on the day the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. If you're going to make notes, 2 Samuel chapter 22, but also you'll see this same truth taught in Psalm 18, 9 and 11. Just let me point this out to you. 2 Samuel chapter 22. Let's just pick up in verse, uh, let's pick up in verse 8. The earth shook and quaked. The foundations of heaven were trembling and were shaken before because he was angry. Smoke went up out of his nostrils. Fire from his mouth devoured. Coals were kindled by it. Now look in verse 10. He bowed the heavens also and came down. You see that? He, he bowed the heavens and he came down. Look at this. With thick darkness under his feet and he rode on a cherub and flew and he appeared on the wings of the wind. Verse 12, and he made darkness canopies around him. A mass of water, thick clouds of the sky, from the brightness before him, coals of fire were kindled. And just in case you're questioning, the Lord thundered from heaven and the Most High uttered His voice. Beloved, God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. But we've seen at least on the covenant that He established with Abraham and the covenant that He established with Moses that was retold in Deuteronomy and what we see here in 2 Samuel chapter 22 and what you'll see the same language in Psalm 18 verse 9 and 10 is that God has the ability to use darkness as a canopy, as a shroud around Him. And dark this darkness... It's not the absence of God. It's the presence of God. And wouldn't it make sense? Wouldn't it make sense? Is there a covenant that God ratifies that He Himself is not present? That, that, that would make no sense to me. It, it would be a right... What, what type of covenant relationship do you and I have? Well, to our spouses, we are in a covenant marriage relationship with them. How much sense would it make for two people to come and make a covenant to one another in by way of marriage and one of them not be there? Can God ratify a covenant that he where he himself is not present? I think not. And Jesus is the one who says that this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And we have to stop. But what we're going to see next week is we're going to see that for the three hours of the darkness, God does not turn His back and walk away. God comes to the cross and He's enshrouded in darkness And as much as majestic and glorious as God moved in Ezekiel chapter 1, when He came from heaven and came into the temple, 
we are going to see that yes, God is omnipresent, but the manifest presence of God shrouded in darkness comes to make an appearance at the cross. And the question is, why and what did He do there? And next week, we will look at it. Okay? All right. Everybody okay? Yep. Anybody have any questions? I want you to think about this, and I want you to consider these things this week, and um, I want to make sure that you're, you know, that you're trekking along. Um, and again, I think, I think if you'll, st- if you'll follow the trail of Scripture, that's all we're trying to do. We're not saying this is what this theologian says. We're not saying this is what happened. We're just right. We're turning from place to place. We're seeing what the Bible itself says. And we're letting the Bible speak to us. So, so go back and, and look through these things. And it'll begin to make even more sense next Sunday as we, um, as we come. Thank you for your patience. Is the darkness that happened during the plague not... Um Part of God showing darkness. I know that the light was on the Israelites, but for three days. It could be. Um, there, you could make the connection with that. What I tried to do was look at the places where it was clearly God. Yeah. One of the mistakes you don't want to make in Bible study is is you don't want to assume everywhere there's darkness, right. it's God. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, I know it was different because, well... Those were not really the Israelites that were in the dark. Mm, right. It was the Egyptians and the Israelites had light. That, that's right. That's right. So, so again, um, I think once you understand the principle and see that, you could. But because the Scripture doesn't make the assertion that that was God's presence in the darkness, I, I would want to be careful making that assertion as well. Okay? You don't want to, every time you see darkness in the Bible assume that that's God because there are places like when it says he delivers from the domain of darkness he's not delivered from the domain of God just the opposite well just like you said every time we see stone it's not the stone of offense that's right stone or stumbling rock of offense absolutely all right we'll have to be careful when we say evil is dark dark darkness signifies evil and then to say that God is dark Mm-hmm. Yeah, and now notice I don't think I don't think that I said that God is darkness. I said God enshrouds him life himself in darkness. I've said very clearly that God is light and in him is no shadow of darkness, right? At all. So I'm not in any way saying that God is darkness. That you have to you have to be careful the way that you say it. But God as you see, when it comes to the new covenant, he did it with Genesis. He did it with Exodus. And, and by the way, if you want to see a New Testament reference to that, Hebrews chapter 12. I forgot to give you this one, but I think it's important. <clears throat> Just uh, mark your Bibles in Hebrews chapter 12. He's talking to those who are considering walking away from the faith. 
And, um, and what he's trying to say is, is you're not coming to God in an old covenant relationship. You're coming to God in new covenant. So when you see this, know that that's the context of which he's saying. He's, he's making it clear that the, the old covenant came to people in the covenant of Moses, right? The Mosaic covenant. And he says that that's not how your relationship is defined with God today. That was then. So he's telling them, he's encouraging them in Hebrews 12, 18, for you have not come to a mountain that can be touched into a blazing fire and to darkness and gloom and a whirlwind and to the blast of trumpet and the sound of words for they could not bear. And he goes on to say, you are coming to God in this way. So even the writer of Hebrews recounting the, the giving of the Mosaic Covenant clearly specifically mentions darkness. Um, and I think the same thing, Sybil, I think that's a, that's a wise warning. I think the same thing with fire. Clearly, you know, his eyes are fire. Um, and clearly here, his presence is marked by fire. But I don't think that you would make the assumption that the uh, pit of fire, hell, is the presence of God. Does that make sense? So I'm, I'm not anyway. And I don't think anybody here heard me say that God is darkness. I said God is light and in him is no darkness at all. But he enshrouds himself. He can't canopies himself in darkness that he could come. If God were to come in his light, what happened with Moses? When Moses says, show me your glory, God put him inside and hid a cleft of a rock and hid him so that he could just catch the glimpse of his backside because the glory of God would have consumed him. So if God is going to come in his holiness and in his purity and in those things, he has to do something so that his presence doesn't obliterate everything and everybody there. Well, is it just not so clear that you're saying he's not darkness, but his presence is where darkness is? Because he's omnipresent, he's there everywhere. He, he is. This is his, just like in Ezekiel. Yeah, that means that that his where the light of God is. That he right. Did you see Second Samuel twenty two? Right, the canopies of darkness. So it's there. So he takes. Remember, God created. God can do anything that he wants to do, and he takes and 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 encompasses himself in darkness so that in darkness covered the whole land I, you know uh, i mean you know god is not confined to it to a space uh, but ezekiel clearly has god as being both omnipresent but his manifest presence came from heaven and came through the eastern gate and into the temple in fact because of sin it also departed the same way when you get a little bit later to Ezekiel chapter 8 through 10 uh, and following. So you're talking about the the special presence, the manifest presence of God. You're talking about God coming down like He did in Genesis 12 or Genesis 15. You're talking about God meeting with man on the mountain like He did in Exodus 24. You're talking about God making an appearance at the cross. Let's stand for prayer then. Our Father, I pray, Lord, I I pray, Father, that we would examine the truths of Scriptures for ourselves. I'm, I'm thankful, God, that Your Word teaches what's called the priesthood of the believer. 
and that is that not every person has to go through an interpreter or a pastor or a religious leader to hear from you in your word or to glean truth from your scripture. There is no mediator between God and man except the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes. And Jesus is the mediator, even as Hebrews twelve twenty four says, Jesus the mediator of a new covenant. Father, I'm thankful that, that each of us can, can go and we can study Your Word for ourselves. Father, I pray that these people here in this place today, known as Doxa Church, would be like the Bereans. They would listen to these things, but they would go and search out Scripture for themselves. Yes. Father, they would come to the conclusions of the things that your word says because they have searched out the scriptures and not because they believe even me as a pastor father i pray that you would continue to shape and make and to mold us in the people that you would have us to be and father even as we begin to see next week why you came to the cross and how your presence ushers in the second element of the cross of the cup of which Christ drank on the cross. And even as we see that, Father, may we understand more and more why His appearance was marred more than any other. And Father, may we be more um amazed at our Savior and be more amazed at the price that He paid in order for us to be brought into a new covenant relationship with You. Yes. God, go before us today, we pray, and bring us back at the appointed time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.